Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I am Haney. We're Native in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 209, recorded on October the 25th, 2022. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nativeintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. So this is an interesting episode. Uh, I, I'm going to start with it's a bit of a challenge from a logistical standpoint because Simon is out and about, apparently in the smartest building in the Nordics. Yeah. It has only failed him twice <laughs> so far this recording. And Haney is in what is going to be the smartest building in Tampere because she just moved. And it's a bit empty still. <laughs> a bit empty still, she says, in a complete echo chamber. So, yeah. Yeah. And then you said something about sitting on the floor as well. I'm sitting on the floor with like a sofa table. So it kind of works. Yeah. And Alexander is the smartest person in the room for once since he's alone yeah. at home. Well played. I do have the cats though, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so you're not the smartest animal in the room, then? No. no. Then again, I, I, I don't think I ever was. But no. Is it also the first time we're actually recording in three different countries at the same time? Have you ever done that? Do you know, I don't think we have. Hmm. That's very international. So we, we are all in Sweden in the 1600s. So... If we go back 400 years, everything would be Sweden. Uh, like, what are you explaining? I don't follow. <laughs> well, that's very common when Simon starts to try to explain things. But mm -hmm. let's just table that for a bit and yeah. go into... So we've had a lot of, of um, episodes with not normal content. Let's just say that. So we're, we're kind of behind on news. So I'm going to take a, a small number of, of um, news items that mm -hmm. may or may not have really tickled your fancy. I'm going to start with what's known as the hyperscale reverse migration. You should see the faces of these two when I, I said that. So hyperscale is one of the offerings of Azure SQL Server, the, the uh, pass service. Previously, we've had the original ones, meaning general purpose and business critical kind of, of um, SQL databases. The hyperscale is based off a completely different architecture, like completely different. That meant that you could go to hyperscale, but it was not possible to migrate from hyperscale. That was simply not possible. But as of fairly recently, it is now possible to reverse migrate from hyperscale should you want to question shoot what is the difference why would you go to hyperscale that's a great question so th there are a couple of reasons one is the hyperscale is touted as the database for 100 terabytes mm -hmm. and that's all nice but very few people really have 100 terabytes but it can do it now, the main difference, in my view, between 
that that it makes it interesting is the way it, and it handles IO. It behaves completely different from um, the general purpose or the business critical uh, versions. It's uh, it's it's basically in between the business critical and, and the general purpose, and it it has um, something called the IO servers. So it essentially uh, takes the IO and and puts it out into uh, a number of processes, if you will. So it's designed for much larger workloads, and it also gives you better performance than general purpose uh, for most workloads, I'd say. And and just as a curiosity, you said databases up to 100 terabytes. If you look at SQL Server on-prem, how big can a database be there? I I can't remember the exact specs, but petabytes. Um, I'm pretty okay. sure that you you can. I I seem to recall that the the issue is probably the OS. Mm. Um, and 100 terabytes is just a number. It's not a fixed number. If you want to have more, you can call up Microsoft, and they're going to go, "Yeah, sure, <laughs> we'll give you more," because you're paying for it. So yeah, um, but I I think hyperscale is probably the way we're going to go forward. Um, I think that the Classic general purpose and, and business critical are, are going to go away over time. Okay, so so hyperscale is the the next iteration of SQL Server POS services. I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I I think definitely that that's going to be the way to go. There is no point in having multiple uh, mm-hmm. offerings essentially. And and what would be the reason to migrate to do exactly what the news item is about? The reverse migration. Why would you do that? The one reason that I can think of is that you find that hyperscale is not giving you the performance you need. You need to go to business critical because mm-hmm. business critical is running locally attached SSDs, which is very different from the remote disks of the general purpose and the sort of kind of remote disks in a hyperscale because you have both a cache, a local cache, and remote IO servers. So that's that's the main reason that I can think of. And then there is a, a small but exceedingly important update for Synapse. And this actually came out in, in September. And that is auto statistics for open row set in CSV datasets. So, I mean, the, the, the biggest call to fame for Synapse is arguably serverless, where you essentially can treat uh, CSV files or Parquet files as a database. You can run SQL select statements on flat files, which is kind of cool. But it is horribly slow with CSVs because there are no statistics, i.e. the optimizer doesn't have a clue what the data looks like, how the data is distributed, and how to best try to access it. With um, statistics, you can do your own statistics, but it kind of takes away some of the the um, simplicity of, of serverless, if you will, because you need to explicitly create your, your statistics. But with auto statistics, well, it does a pretty decent job of creating, as it says on the tin, automatic statistics. And this is going to give you roughly 30-ish percent uh, performance increase without having to do anything. That's the kind of, of go faster switch that I like. Sounds too good to be true. 
I've learned within cybersecurity <laughs> that nothing is as good as it sounds. No, and, and generally I would agree, but this is doing something that SQL Server has been doing, well, I don't know, since the 90s, probably 6.5, probably earlier than that. And it's it's an it's a no-brainer. It was just not there in, in serverless previously. It wasn't available, and now it is. So in, in this case, it's free for the end user. It's going to give you better performance. Kind of cool. Let's keep going for the Power BI updates. And um, the, the Power BI updates, well, we had the September updates and we had the October updates, and there, there have been some stuff. I'm going to go straight to the October stuff. So direct query, meaning that everything I do in Power BI gets sent essentially wholesale to the, um, the um, underlying data storage medium. So if it's a SQL Server, well, it's going to come down as a SQL statement. Well, it's not quite that easy. Because if you do a top, top N, give me the top five or whatever, what, is, what it used to do was to bring all the rows to Power BI and then do the top. So the top stuff was happening inside of Power BI. Sounds inefficient. Eh, you could say that. I mean, <laughs> if, if you have a large data set, it's, it's going to hurt you. If you have mm -hmm. a small data set, not so much. I mean, uh, the VertiPack engine is, is exceedingly fast, but you still need to pull the data in. With the October update, the top end filter is going to be pushed down as a top SQL statement. Now, the top statement isn't the best in history, but it's much faster than pulling all that data to Power BI. So that's that's quite, quite nice, I'd say. And, and does that apply to any other data source than SQL, or like have they done anything else other than, than that difference? That's a great question. I don't know uh, from the top of my head if, if top <laughs> the end top gets... The top five of your head. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm guessing, and this is me guessing, that it will do this for all relational database sources, but that's a guess. And then we have one of the things that some people love to hate. So DAX. DAX is hard, in my view. And a while back, Microsoft said that we're going to do DAX automatically. We're going to allow the GPT engine to create DAX. You, you specify what you want to do, and it's going to give you DAX. Uh, the Italians had some issues with this. Let's just say that. And, and I, I have to agree. I mean, I, I think for the listeners, please clarify that you're talking about specific Italians and not Italy as a population. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good point. I don't think Gianluca Sartori is going to care in the slightest about that. No, this is Alberto Ferrari and, and, and Marco Russo, known as the Italians whenever we talk about DAX and Power BI. So uh, they, they essentially said, well, DAX, it, it, it's not going to work if you have an automatically created DAX because you need to know what you want to achieve in order to get DAX to work. And I agree with that. But what they have added is the quick measure suggestions. So quick measures are a, a 
way to generate very, very quickly a DAX statement. And the way I think this can be absolutely fantastic is for poor people like me that have a grasp of DAX. I'm not good at DAX, but I can tweak DAX. And if it, if it gives me a, a scaffolding, a skeleton to work from, then I can do a proper damage from that. So now it's going to give me suggestions whenever I go to, to do a quick measure. And that's something that I can build on instead of going, yeah, I'm pretty sure that I need to start with calculate, but that's all I seem to remember. So I think this is a good way to, to give you something to build on. Sure. It's lazy, but yeah, I'll take it because otherwise I'm not going to be able to do anything. And those were probably the biggest things that I want to mention so far on, on the, the news side of things. Um, Haney, you found some few interesting stuff as well. Yeah, I have just like two smallish updates around, well, more than two updates, but around two different topics. So the first one is around private endpoints, which you might think like, well, it's private endpoints, what's there to update? Uh, but there is a nice new capability that you can actually give a static IP from your subnet to your private endpoint, whereas previously it was always dynamically assigned from the pool of IP addresses in your subnet. So this give you, gives you more control and you could, uh, even if you have to recreate something, you could ensure that you have the same IP address available. And then uh, when you create a private endpoint, it also creates a network interface card in that subnet where you enable the private endpoint. And that it's actually that network interface card that has the IP address. But this network interface card would get a, a bit of a half-random name. At least that's how it looked like. So now you can actually give a custom name to this NIC and align it with your naming conventions as well. So nothing major to the capability uh, per se, but these are things that will make managing this a whole lot easier. Name your solution inside of a private endpoint or in, yeah, in, in private endpoints. Do you need to have your own DNS set up or is that going to be sorted through the backbone? So you either need, you need to have DNS in place. The Azure built-in DNS resolver does not find the private endpoint names. You either have to have Azure private DNS zones in place, or you could have like a custom DNS uh, VM in your VNet, for example, but you have to have a DNS somehow. And if you use Azure private DNS zones, then the records get created automatically when you create a private endpoint. So that does uh, kind of diminish the management of it quite a bit. So with, with static IPs, you can essentially just skip the whole DNS well, you cannot skip it. You still have to have the names resolved somewhere. But because you still have an IP address that points to some kind of name, so you still need to have that connection, that record somewhere, and you need to be able to fetch it. If you want to use the DNS alias, yes. Yeah. Fair enough. Hey, you, you know, DNS was invented like in your lifetime. There's a reason why we have it. But but I know that you like to remember thousands of IP addresses. Mm, yeah, yeah, that that's one of my hobbies. Mm -hmm. 
You, like some like collecting stamps, you collect IP addresses. But but I don't know, maybe I, Alexander missed your point, but the thing is that even if you have a static IP uh, for the service, you cannot call a pass service with an IP address directly because there's, there's a certificate chain that gets checked. You have ah, to call it with a name. Thank you. That's that maybe the point it. that you were trying to refer to. Now ah, I understood yeah, yeah. it from Simon's Great comment point. of remembering thousands of IP addresses. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that was a very good point because that, that explains why I could not implement static IPs in private endpoints and skip DNS. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Good stuff. Yeah, but I, I do think this is an essential point that if you're new to an area, this might seem as something that's, hey, cool or not so cool. But when you set it into a bigger scope, like you said, naming conventions, automation, security to some aspects as well, because if you don't know which network card you're switching, you, you might end up in quite interesting situations. So even though it's small changes that might seem more or less relevant, it adds up to a complete infrastructure. And for things that have run on-prem, that's been built over 40, 50, 60 years. But for Azure, we are still building that while doing new things. So small changes have a big impact. Or am I totally wrong in that? I, I think you're totally right. And the thing is that the small changes also accumulate over mm -hmm. time so that they like sometimes it feels like there's only small changes coming but when there's yeah. those coming every week or every other week it starts to add up in a year quite a bit mm -hmm. and then it then it acquires another name technical debt <laughs> oh oh you made that name i thought that the service gets renamed oh that too. <laughs> exactly but they never get to the naming technical depth I, I i hope that we get that service soon and it will be i know it will have an icon like the uh, recycle bin ah so that, that's where you pull all of your services that you want to delete <laughs> then you just put them into the technical depth one <laughs> nice it's it's probably an easter egg like it doesn't do anything other than just a fancy delete button but it's a service and they will probably use that when they have fewer services than aws technical debt as a service okay right tdas yeah and then who's who's blob and uh, adl uh, and then why should you use them as output any <laughs> oh you're trying to get us to the next topic yeah all right so uh there's also some pretty cool updates to Azure Stream Analytics. It is, at least for me, one of the services I use a little less, but it is really interesting in how it's evolving lately. And uh, for Azure Stream Analytics, since it often integrates with event hubs quite closely, so there is this no-code editor that has come into Essentially, you can find it in Event Hub, but it's an editor for the Azure Stream Analytics. And so you can go in and build your Azure Stream Analytics job with this editor, kind of like we have Azure Data Factory or the Synapse Pipelines, where you have a graphical interface that you can use. So this kind of brings the same kind of ease, ease to building the Stream Analytics jobs as well, because previously these have been just code that you have to write. So it's again kind of bringing it closer to maybe also the users that do not have 
uh, so much coding background. Uh, then another feature in stream analytics is that there is a capability or, well, um, it can guarantee once exactly once delivery for Azure Data Lake storage and blob storage. So that way it both guarantees no data loss as well as not getting any duplicates when you do write to these outputs. And it is kind of essential when we talk about streams that we don't end up duplicating data or missing some data. So um, it gives you that insurance that you have that logic in place and you don't have to have monitoring in place to guarantee that or anything like your custom setups to ensure that that doesn't happen. But this is actually now built in, which is quite interesting to see. For sure. I've uh, faced uh, issues with um, stuff getting written more than once. So far, I've not missed any data, but I have had mm -hmm. data written more than once, and that has messed things up downstream. Because it's, as you said, it, it requires you to either have monitoring or you need to sort it downstream, be, be prepared for this downstream, which makes things an order of magnitude more complicated. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think this ties in very well with like the data lake storage being a central part of many data solutions that you actually have. That is the service where you have this guarantee in place. Indeed. Indeed. What always happens during or up to leading up to Ignite is essentially it's, it's quiet. Then comes Ignite like a wave, just crashes over us with so much stuff and then it's back to just nothing for quite a while uh we were not at ignite so ignite was a hybrid event this year we were not at ignite we were sitting at home should we talk about these events these hybrid <laughs> events let, let's just say I haven't seen a single session. Neither have I. Because I don't see the reason. And I'm very, very, very sorry to say that. Um, since I haven't seen anything, and since I haven't yeah. been there, obviously, I can't say anything about how it were. But based on the feedback I've received, both from friends that were in Seattle, that were in the local events um, and have watched things online. I would say that this is not what the community wants. I've heard much better feedback on the local events than Seattle, all in all. Like uh, from the people that in, in the UK, I was at South Coast Summit just after Ignite. And a lot of people that were at Ignite in Manchester were pleased, uh, but then at the same time it was free and very close to home for a lot of them. My friends and community colleagues and so on um, that was that were in Seattle were disappointed. Everyone loves Seattle. We all love Seattle, uh, but the event were not good, and. The sessions that I've seen bits and pieces from and so on have been very sales focused, much more high level, very few 
level even level 300 sessions that that's my thoughts and i'm honestly as sad as i am that i didn't go to seattle as glad am i that i didn't go to ignite because i couldn't just see the the business benefit of doing that other than meeting a lot of great people and i think that's that that's the crux i mean we we went to ignite to sure experience the the um, the spectacle uh, that's that's always fantastic with with 20 30,000 people in in one place but it was all about meeting people talking to the product teams face to face uh, talking to people you've spent the last year talking to over the internet face to face and that is gone um i i was told by uh, someone in marketing that said well do, doing doing ignite like this is it total no-brainer there is compared to having 30,000 people on site this this is orders of magnitude simpler faster better for everything and i think they completely missed the point mm -hmm. and and i just want to add one more thing before i forget it i think it's both disappointing and honestly embarrassing that Satya wasn't on site in Seattle. He he, it, he he didn't do anything on site in Seattle. And I think like it's fine if the keynote is recorded, but then do something for the live audience. And I think that's mm -hmm. the least he could have done. Because I think that that shows how low they prioritize the event. Yeah, and I. I have to say that I I did few, watch a few ses sessions and, but especially with when sessions are recorded, to me even though like it is, it is sometimes said that it's you know safer. It's they're gonna be able to come through. There's no internet issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the issue to me is then that when you are recording as a presenter, the energy you put out is very different. And when you are doing it live, whether it's online or in person, but still, at least for me, the energy is different if I'm presenting to a live audience. It doesn't matter if it's online or in person. In person, it's even you know, easier. You can read the audience, etc. But it is a different kind of um, thing to do as a presenter as well. And I, it's, it's I think... Different. For me, it is also like I want to actually put my time to the session at the time slot that I have and kind of show that I'm here for you and not just they're playing some recording of me from somewhere. And also the thing is that recorded things often seem more rehearsed and more, you know, script-writing, I guess. And that's also an issue for me, even though, like, of course... They should be rehearsed and there should be a point to the story, etc. But they seem very like written, uh, read from a script oftentimes. Everything becomes canned as soon as you record it. And that, that's that's just the way it is. Now, to play the devocate, the devil's advocate for a second, we are in complete agreement that we do not like this format. Most of the community 
are in complete agreement with this. We do not like this format. Does that matter? How big of the actual um, uh, amount of, of um, wow, what the word I'm looking for? The customer base is the word I'm looking for. How 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 much of the customer base is the community really mm. compared to the yeah. three hundred thousand people that Microsoft reaches through Ignite when it mm-hmm. is hybrid and online? Does it really matter what we think? And that that's that's a question to the two of you. What do you think? Well. I, I think this kind of comes to the actually to the interview that we did last time where uh, we were pointed out to that you oftentimes think that if you see something and you experience something, then you think that that is the only truth. Yes. But I do that there has to be some demand for this, for Microsoft to keep doing this. There has to be. <laughs> and there has to be people who still want to join and find it useful. So I, I'm kind of assuming that it has to be so that there is a lot of people who actually uh, find it easier to be able to attend this kind of event than when it is in person. For sure. I mean, it, there is something to be said about um, accessibility and, and that. I mean, not everybody can, can go from across the world to Seattle. That, that's a very, very good point. Um, and in, in my view, that, that's the the one really good point of, of running things virtual. Uh, but yeah. But at the same time, they had a hybrid event for the former Ignites as well. They recorded all sessions. They made them available free of charge yep. after the event. Mm-hmm. We still vent because in my opinion, for three reasons, we wanted to be there. Like that, that's a fair point, I think. We wanted to be mm-hmm. there to experience it, to get that energy to be able to ask questions. For me, I went there to meet all the other Microsoft partners, the Expo. That's a huge and important thing of the way I see IT architecture and where I see Microsoft being the hub of all of this. Third, we wanted to be there uh, to meet others. Yeah. And I think to your point, no. I don't think this will have any impact. I don't think Microsoft Ignite had any significant impact on on Microsoft's bottom line when it was a big event either. But I do think that long-term, they will be moving, if they do it like this, they will be moving away from the community as a whole. Mm -hmm. And they have a very unique community that I think they should keep doing it it's we can talk about the mvp program at some other point um i do think it matters long term short term no and and i think that that is that is key you think it matters um Mm -hmm. it it seems like what we think in this case doesn't matter because there are greater powers that prevail and they they think that this is the way to go i mean we have the discussion about the mvp summit is there going to be a an in in face-to-face summit, we don't know. Uh, but we do know that uh, Ignite next year is going to be the same kind of event because it's going to be two days and that is going to mean that it's not going to be a, a big event like like we're used to. 
So I don't know. Have have we seen the end of of large scale events? I mean, there there's also the the um, environmental impact of not traveling, and that's also very difficult to argue against. Um, and I think that's where it becomes difficult. How do you how do you compare these things? How do you measure value? How do you measure the 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 value from going physically to an event? I think that value is sky high, but apparently not everybody does. So why don't we just say this? Any of our listeners that have opinions, please shoot us an email because we'd love to to discuss this. And if you want to come on and, and have a conversation, because we see this from our perspective, I'm curious to hear what the the consumers of the the um the intended focus group which isn't us it's customers exactly which, which i that that part i fully get mm-hmm. um so i wanted to add one more thing before we talk about some of the things that were announced at ignite we we won't have time to go through them all in 10 minutes uh even if we ran over which 10 minutes for us is usually 20 minutes but then look at vmware vmworld is now VM Explorer. It's not as big, but it's still big events. And it's the same kind of format as it used to be and the same kind of format that Ignite used to be. And I've only heard good things about VMworld US and we have VMworld or VM Expo in Barcelona coming up now and where a lot of people are super excited. So you can also argue they are doing a completely different thing and we can talk about VMware all along. I also wanted to say that on a partner point of view, I think what Microsoft is doing for partners at Ignite is unfortunately pointing in the same direction that some of the news items that I will talk about, that Microsoft have changed strategy as I see it. They want to do more things on their own and give less to their tactical partners or channel partners. That's my view. Yeah. So what happened during Ignite, since we only have a few minutes left, we have to be uh, picky, but we will have more episodes coming up with more news items. We will. <laughs> and uh, so Ignite for me is a bit of a weird one because generally the data stuff came out at PASS, PASS Summit. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been some data updates um, that I, I, I'd love to go through. One is the R language. So mm-hmm. Python and R are the two main uh, data science languages. And people were actually appalled that you did not have R support mm-hmm. in, in Synapse. Like, dude, why? Mm-hmm. Uh, Even I know that. Yes. <laughs> there, there you have you scope the problem. Now, it's, <laughs> it's here now. Um, it's there with... Um, well, everything you can do in Python, you can do in R, and now you can choose, essentially. Uh, you're also going to get a new version of the Synapse ML library, which is the, the underlying engine, if you will, for machine learning. And this one gives you .NET support, uh, the, uh, the GPT language models, uh, ML flow, and other stuff. It's, it's a step in the right direction, for, for sure. Um... I'm going to keep going because I'm I'm curious to hear. <laughs> so Simon and Haney, you both came up through 
some infrastructure stuff. I don't know, Haney, did you ever work with hands-on um, computer servers and stuff? No, I didn't need to touch them, but I've, I've you know, seen them and been more close to the actual physical things as well. Okay, you didn't need to touch them. I've so, touched my fair share of hardware. Yeah, uh, yeah. Azure Elastic SAN. So SAN, storage area network, uh, something that we used to have on-prem mm -hmm. where you have one system with all the storage and then you just give storage to the specific servers. It, it definitely beats having to run around with, with the hard drives and, and put them in, in very uh, mm -hmm. specific servers. The Azure Elastic SAN, it's in preview, is a cloud-native and fully managed storage area network. So it's going to give you a lot of the decentralized properties of a SAN with cloud storage. Really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to dive into that uh, going forward. Again, it's in, in preview, so it's hard to get much information, but there, there's interesting stuff there. Absolutely. So can I go next? Yes, you can. We have an important announcement. Do you remember when Microsoft decided to rename Microsoft Win Intune and Windows? No. <laughs> Mark Windows 10 is the last Windows. I will die upon this hill. <laughs> um, no, but they renamed it to Microsoft Endpoint Manager. And I, I think this was 2018, if I'm not mistaken. And since then, we have argued what should be the hashtag for Microsoft Intune and Config Manager and all of that. Now, Microsoft has come to their senses and we are back. So now the service is named Intune again. Mem is no more, which is interesting. And I think is it's, it's a good choice. No one really understood Mem regardless. I have never said Mem probably in, in an actual sentence. Uh, so we're back. And with that, they introduced a new SKU. So instead of naming this one P2, as they used to do, we now have something called the Advanced Management Suite to add on top of Intune. So if you have E3 or E5, you can have a suite of products, which include things like uh, remote uh, management, so remote access, two devices for service desks and so on for Windows and Android initially. Uh, we get uh, Microsoft Tunnel for mobile app management, basically per app VPN for mobile devices. And we get endpoint privilege management. That is the ability to uh, get local admin permissions when needed on an endpoint that is Azure AD joined, which hasn't been available. All of this have, of course, been available as third-party solutions, partner solutions previously, but a lot of my customers and a lot of others, for some odd reason, wants first-party services. And Microsoft have now added that, but to an additional cost. So if you want this suite of different kinds of services that will enable you to go first-party with Microsoft, then you now have this add-on to V3 and E5. And, and you can always argue, like I, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm one of very few people in the world that likes licensing. Um, 
And this is What's a wrong? discussion I've had. Yeah, I know. Oh, don't ask. <laughs> I'm unique. Hmm. Uh, yes, but this is something that because a lot of people have questioned why should we pay more? We already pay for E3 and E5. Uh, and my opinion is that, well, this is new services. New services is costly. And if you look at E3 and E5, the prices haven't really increased that much over time. They've always been relatively expensive and they did a big bump last year, I think. But I think it's reasonable. And I do think that you should have the choice of then either buying these solutions from other partners or buying first party. I don't see why it should be free. And a lot of people will not agree on that, but I think Microsoft is here to earn money. If you think anything else, you should stop being in IT. I once had a fortune cookie which said, everyone lives on selling something. And if you haven't figured that out yet, I think you should get a grip of life. Well, okay. That Not was... sure what I can say after that. <laughs> no. So did, did you find any, any news items that stood out, Henny? Well, the first thing that stood out to me was the entire... Microsoft Intelligent Data Platform was still mentioned in the book book of news and in at Ignite. This came out, I think, the the previous Ignite, mm-hmm. and I was back then wondering, like, is this a new service or what is it? But it seems more that it just refers to the suite of data platform tools that are available in Azure. Yeah, but it does cl- claim that it's a seamless data platform. Uh, service or something. I don't think that so, means what you think it means, but okay. <laughs> yes. But anyways, it seems that that name is here to stay and mm-hmm. Microsoft ha- has added uh, third-party partners to this. So bringing in solutions from third parties that you can then uh, integrate with the other Azure data platform services. So interesting to see where this actually is heading. It could be that there's some plan. I don't know. But uh, yes, it is still there. <laughs> that that just stuck to me when I saw it. It's hard not to feel like we're waiting on something. Uh, I can't really put my fingers on it, uh, but I, I, I kind of get the feeling that there there are a lot of pieces being moved in the background. But I'm I'm curious about the the whole uh, partner ecosystem because they've tried that before, mm-hmm. and it was a bit messy yeah we'll see we'll see another interesting thing for me was that the azure cosmos db for postgresql came and it kind of shifts the direction of cosmos db a little bit because it has been a no sql offering but postgresql now is a you know fully fledged relational database that can you can use but you now have this within cosmos db there is still the Azure database for PostgreSQL as well, but now there is also this offering on Cosmos DB as well. And so that, of course, means since it is in PostgreSQL, you get the global scale that you get with Cosmos DB in general. So that is kind of what it brings in addition to the regular Azure database PostgreSQL offering. Interesting to see whether there will be something else added in the future maybe as well. 
in talking about this whole we see the world from our perspective i have never ever talked to anyone who uses postgresql in azure much less even asked about um, running it in, in in cosmos um, hey, hey looks curious yeah i i we have plenty of customers that use postgresql in azure i i think if you're looking more towards like the software development companies it's quite usual to not go from the Microsoft SQL, but actually use other SQL. Um, yeah, and, and, and it, it makes all the sense because MySQL and, and MariaDB is, is a great offering, but it's not as complete as PostgreSQL, which in, in essence is an Oracle Lite. So it, it just drives home the point that in, in, in my, albeit small corner of the universe, Things work the way that I expect them to do. And and it's great to see what happens outside of, of the comfort zone, if you will. Yeah. Can I have a request? Can we at some point explain the differences between these different databases? Sure. Because I don't get yeah. it. And I, I, I just seem so utterly complicated. <laughs> so so I, I would be so happy to like, when would you use each kind of database? What are they good at? Why would I use one over the other? Can we do that, yeah. please? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll I'll add that to a, a focus segment. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Cool. Excellent. Another thing that came out is that the Azure Domain Name System Private Resolver came to be generally available. And this is like a service that you can use from Azure uh, to provide name resolution and have uh, your name resolution forwarded from your on-premise site to Azure without having to put up a actual VM and run your DNS there, or the other option has been to use Azure Firewall as a proxy. So this is a more lightweight uh, option that you now have available. Yep, that, that's yeah, that, that's that's a great piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, has been asked for for a long time by many customers. Yeah, and no, and no response. Probably sounds with name resolution. <laughs> <sighs> yes. So we're running out of time, as we always we are. Haney, you're going to Seattle. Oh, nice! Congratulations. Why? Thank you. There is the PaaS Data Community Summit there. Uh, which is still, I think it is a four-day event, five-day event. No, I can't remember. I got confused. And there are pre-con days and then the regular session days. So I will be doing two sessions there. Looking forward to it. Indeed. That's going to be the first time in Seattle for you, right? Yes, in person. Not in Seattle, but yes. Ah, yeah, yeah, first yeah, time yeah, at PASS in Seattle, in person. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite jealous. Uh, I hope it's going to mm -hmm. be amazing for you. I really hope so too. We will be back. Oh, I'm yes, we will definitely be back. Uh, we're going to be back in two weeks mm -hmm. with more shenanigans, <laughs> as we always are. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back, as we said, in two weeks. And until then, have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need Even Tech. Nidibin Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder, and Heini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, 
questions or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at 